0: Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly podcast. I'm John Michael McGrath. Steve Paikin is away this week, so joining me in studio is pinch hitter host, regular producer Tiffany Lamb.
1: Another baseball metaphor from John Michael McGrath. That one is for you, Steve Paikin. Hi, I'm Tiff Lamb, usually behind the scenes.
0: Today on the pod, the province has released its fall economic statement. We'll look at whether the government is putting money where its mouth is.
1: The government has flip-flopped on the use of the notwithstanding clause and repealed back-to-work legislation. There also seems to be an almost flip-flop on mask mandates.
0: Indeed, we'll unpack a brief COVID update. Then, the promise of more housing has prompted revisions to Ontario's Greenbelt.
1: It's November 15th, 2022. Let's get to it.
0: Hi Tiff, how you doing? I'm terrified to be here. <laughs> You're <laughs> literally sitting in Steve's chair. I can't uh, imagine how that feels.
1: Not ready. Never was ready. <laughs>
0: So we have started taking some listener questions, uh, comments, commentary lately. This week's question comes from a provincial civil servant named Alan. Let's hear it. Alan's attention was piqued by Steve's comments about Doug Ford calling out interim liberal leader John Fraser uh, on our November 1st episode. You know, credit where it's due. The premier has done a reasonably good job holding his temper in recent months. Uh, particularly in the lead up to the election. But this convoy business really got
1: to him late last week when the interim liberal leader, John Fraser, accused Doug Ford of hiding in his basement. That was the term he used. You were hiding in your basement while Ottawa was under siege. And the premier blew his stack, accusing Fraser of being part of, quote, the most politically corrupt
0: government this province has ever seen, which is great rhetoric, but I guess the journalist in me wants to say it's empirically, provably false, as allegations go. There were far more corrupt governments in this province a century ago. Anyway, Alan asked a few questions, including asking us to define corruption and whether we were trying to insinuate that the Wynne government was corrupt. Uh, Not sure I got that impression. We were just reporting what the premier had said to uh, Minister John Fraser. Uh, I will just add as a, a, a side note that the Wynne government was accused by progressive conservatives of and I'm using air quotes here, uh, political corruption, because if they had tried to allege actual corruption, they would have lost defamation cases, mm. and when uh, did bring defamation actions against uh, at least one progressive conservative leader.
1: I thought so, you couldn't do that.
0: <laughs> if you're unwise enough as an MPP to say it outside of the chamber of the legislature, you are not protected by privilege.
1: I see. These little things. Anyway. Yes, um, anyway,
0: that was all just a side note. <laughs> one of the questions I think we can drill down on is from Alan... Could you elaborate on other examples of past Ontario governments that were corrupt?
1: So I'll be honest, I'm not Steve Pakin, as I've already established at the top. Um, I have a memory of a goldfish, so I did not need to actually Google this. But one that caught my eye in particular, uh, one with Patty Starr, who was a liberal MPP in the late 1980s. She was illegally using charitable funds for political campaign donations. She was sentenced to six months of jail, guilty of election fraud and breach of trust. Um, but then was paroled after two months, and now has a whole memoir about how she was a scapegoat. And I'm just like, this drama, I can't believe it. Anyway, how about you?
0: I'm gonna go back a bit further uh, before uh, either you or I were alive, but, uh, you know, somebody has to represent the the longer historical perspective that Steve tends to bring to the podcast. See, this is
1: why you are actually replacing Steve Bacon, not me.
0: <laughs> so, uh, in the 1940s, uh, George Drew, the uh, Progressive Conservative Premier of the day, was accused of running a, quote, Gestapo squad out of the Ontario Provincial Police. Uh, The accusation was made by the leader of the CCF, Ted Jolliffe. The CCF was the precursor to today's uh, NDP, and the charge was so incendiary in the midst of the 1945 election, uh, it led to a Royal Commission, uh, because, of course, it did. That's what we do with scandals in Canada. Uh, The Commission did eventually uh, exonerate Premier Drew on the specific allegation that he was directing the OPP to attack his political opponents, but there remain... I'm not protected by privilege, so I'm gonna be careful about how I say this. There remain substantial historical questions about how involved Drew was in the conduct of the OPP back then. And so this isn't like financial corruption, but I would say that using the OPP as a potential um, uh, political weapon against your opponents, that, that probably counts as a scandal.
1: Yeah, sus. Thanks for writing, Alan.
0: You can write the show at onpolitics@tvo.org with a question you'd like us to answer and prompt uh, further discussions.
1: Previous governments added almost $200 billion to Ontario's debt, and what do they have to show for
0: it? Our government, Mr. Speaker, is taking a different path. We're taking a responsible and targeted approach, making record investments in the
1: priorities that matter to the people of Ontario.
0: That was Finance Minister Peter Bethanfalvey at Queen's Park on Monday introducing the fall economic statement, uh, the usual autumn mini budget that we get uh, about this time of year every year. It's always a a substantial document, but a less substantial document than we get in the spring, which is the full budget. which is why we refer to this as the the mini budget. Um, But it was especially less substantial (laughs) this year. It was a pretty thin (laughs) document. Um, Basically, a series of small updates to the government's budget policies. And here I will, of course, remind our listeners that were actually only a, like about 100 days away from when the budget was reintroduced after the election. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't really expect a, uh, a massive document full of big changes.
1: So what was your major takeaway, John Michael?
0: Well, you know, the headline number here is the government projecting a return to deficits next year, uh, despite a, a small surplus uh, in the last fiscal year. Um, and, you know, projecting deficits... Uh, as far forward as their projections go, which is uh, three years. Uh, on the, the final year of their projection, they are, however, uh, projecting a small deficit of less than a billion dollars. So realistically, I think it would be fair for us to call this, you know, a plausible path back to a balanced budget, because the government always uses somewhat pessimistic, somewhat conservative projections as we go forward. So I won't be surprised if, in fact, the budget is balanced by 2025, uh, despite what the government is saying in this week's uh, fall economic statement. Mm. Uh, the province does did also uh, publish, and this is actually something they've taken to doing in the last few years that I actually really like. They've published uh, alternative scenarios, uh, like a, a slower growth scenario and a higher growth scenario in which uh, tax revenues are larger than projected. Um, and you know that gives you a good uh, sense of you know what the range of possibilities is. Uh, in the high growth scenario, they are projecting that the surplus for the government could be as high as $9 billion by 2025. Uh, that's on a budget of roughly uh, $200 billion dollars overall uh, but i would say that a, a, a large surplus uh, is unlikely for a few reasons and one of them is hinted at in this fall economic statement uh, the government is extending the tax cut for uh, gasoline that they introduced earlier this year as uh, what was billed as a temporary measure to help uh, motorists with the pain of high uh, gas prices That is being extended for another year. And I I think you could read this as a hint of the way things are going. If the government does suddenly find itself flush with cash in the next several years, this government in particular is much more likely to uh, spend that money with tax cuts than they are with oodles of new public spending in other services.
1: I think it's interesting. Like, it sounds like they're kind of responding to criticism from opposition parties in the past, recently kind of saying, you know, the government's in the black and therefore shorting services in hospitals. Did they offer any specifics with regards to changes in policies or supports for Ontario services?
0: Well, just as a reminder, you know, the spring budget, which then, of course, got reintroduced as the summer budget, uh, does have a lot of money in there for new hospitals, uh, not as much for education, a lot on transportation spending, highways, subways, that kind of thing, uh, including, of course, controversial highways uh, like the 413. Uh, There were, however, a handful of, of, I would say, smallish policy changes. uh, One that caught my eye, in particular, because this the government has been criticized for not increasing uh, rates of the Ontario Disability Support Payment or ODSP. This is uh, one of the main sort of social supports that uh, we have for people whose uh injuries or health conditions that prevent them from working in Ontario. As I say, this government's been criticized for not increasing ODSP rates in the context of especially the high inflation of the last year. They are not massively increasing uh, ODSP rates, but they are doing something that I, I think is interesting in terms of like how conservatives see the world. They are allowing ODSP recipients to earn substantially more money uh, without it being clawed back by the province. Uh, ODSP recipients will now be allowed to earn uh, $1,000 a month without losing any of their uh, ODSP income. Hmm. And then every dollar above that will start to get clawed back. They will uh, still be able to keep 25 cents of their ODSP uh, income for every dollar above that thousand dollar threshold.
1: Now, the government's been talking a big, big game about expanding housing to remedy things like affordability. Um, We'll obviously get into that a little bit later in the episode, but was there anything in their budget that indicates or maybe forecasts what's to come on the affordability front?
0: Yeah, this was certainly interesting, you might even call it funny. Um, I, I couldn't oh, help but notice that the uh, finance ministry's experts are are basically all projecting that the government's housing policies are going to fail. Oh, um, falling housing starts for the next several years are projected, continuing high prices. This has uh, obvious impacts on government revenues because, of course, uh, the government levies uh, land transfer taxes for example it also levies uh, property taxes for schools and uh, even measures that were already introduced things like increasing the non-resident speculation tax which is a tax that ontario puts on houses to prevent uh, foreign buyers from uh, you know getting windfalls uh, that is actually projected to uh, decrease uh, the the government's revenues because it's going to suppress more real estate transactions that the government would actually collect revenue on I should say that there are very good reasons why these projections um, are not like a perfect vision of the future. And obviously, the government hopes that these projections are wrong. The government wants to see more housing starts. But if you're looking for evidence in the fall economic statement that the uh, government's housing policies are going to start paying dividends in the near future, you won't find it.
1: I guess, to be fair, it's also what you were saying. Like sometimes they try to be a bit more conservative when they're trying to forecast things like this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for that summary.
0: Minister, care to briefly explain his bill. Uh,
1: thank you, Speaker, uh, self explanatory. The bill allows us to uh, continue working with our, our friends in education to ensure that our kids are, uh, are in school, uh, remain in school. Thank you.
0: The ayes are 100, the nays are 0.
1: The ayes being 100 and the nays being 0, I declare the motion carried. Yeah.
0: That was the end of things for Bill 28, the short-lived Keeping Students in Class Act that invoked the notwithstanding clause in the government's fight with CUPE workers. The House voted quickly and overwhelmingly on Monday afternoon to repeal the bill, with 100 MPPs voting to repeal and zero voting against. The opposition allowed the government to move the bill quickly through the House with no debate, uh, but they did force a recorded vote on the third and final reading of the bill. So now negotiations will continue between the Ministry of Education and education unions as the government tries to both keep schools open while also keeping a limit on public sector compensation. At least for now, the government is putting away the threat of using the notwithstanding clause.
1: So if I heard you correctly, this repeal happened in one day. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And we'd said before that, you know, Bill 28 was already very, very fast. Yes. So is this just like more of like, this is not normal? Uh, It is not normal. We saw
0: this a few times during the pandemic where the government was with all party support able to get bills through the House very quickly. But this is uh, very unusual. And this all falls under the category of uh, you can do anything with unanimous consent. Mm. So long as nobody stands up and objects to uh, a a temporary change in the rules, uh, you can do a lot. And that's what happened here.
1: Interesting. So what do you think changed since the introduction of Bill 28 literally like two weeks ago um, and the strikes that happened the Friday and Monday after and then the announcement to repeal the bill literally, I want to say like a business day later?
0: Yes. So there are several things that have happened. And, uh, you know, we should definitely talk about the massive pushback from uh, unions, uh, both in the public sector and and outside of the public sector. Uh, But before we get to that, I mean, we love to point to polls where we can because, frankly, the alternative to citing polls is going with your gut, and that can be badly wrong. (laughs) There was a poll taken uh, after the government Uh, passed Bill 28, but before they announced the repeal of Bill 28, poll by Abacus Data uh, that uh, surveyed Ontarians about their feelings towards uh, the negotiations with the union and the possibility of the strike. Uh, They found widespread awareness and significant attention being paid to the issue by the public. Sometimes these issues just don't penetrate uh, the public consciousness. This one very clearly did. Mm. Uh, More Ontarians blamed the provincial government for the school closures than education workers. Half would support more unions walking off the job in sympathy with education workers. 71% wanted the provincial government to negotiate what they called a fair deal with education workers rather than continue the uh, what the poll called the current approach we could now call the discarded approach. <laughs> and yet, despite all those pretty bad numbers for the government, the political impact for the progressive conservatives had been pretty limited up to that point. Uh, they they were not seeing any uh, dramatic decrease in their uh, popularity or in, in the willingness of people to vote for them for a hypothetical third term.
1: Yeah, I, I wondered about that, because those numbers definitely seem to affirm the things that you and Steve had discussed in the past episodes, which is the lack of political consequence for something like the notwithstanding clause. And I guess I'm just curious, like, why would that be? Like, is it just so hard to kind of like wrap our heads around about what exactly the gravity is of using something like this?
0: I think in part, they didn't get to uh, the really severe political consequences because they backed off so quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, That abacus poll, as I said, was in the field before the government backed off. And if they had dug in their heels and and really tried to, to wait out the union, it could have gotten a lot worse for the premier and his party. This time, though, uh, there was uh, also uh, just a, a lot more pushback. You now, I mentioned this at the top. We also had the uh, massive pushback from unions, uh, again, not just in the public sector. We know that uh, the premier's office was getting angry phone calls from some of those same uh, construction sector unions that endorsed the PC party uh, mm-hmm. less than a year ago.
1: Layuna, yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so I think the combination of some, uh, <laughs> let's say, anxiety-inducing poll numbers and that uh, solidarity, for lack of a better word, among unions uh, definitely uh, contributed to the premier's office changing its mind.
1: Yeah, fair enough. And, you know, if people want to read more about that, that's in our newsletter this week um, or the newsletter that Stephen and John Michael wrote. Uh, by Tuesday last week, though, the government and QP went back to the bargaining table. Most districts did go back to school. Um, and I will say before we, like, we move on, one thing really caught my eye last week, and that was when Doug Ford made this comment about his use of the notwithstanding clause not being as dangerous as the strikes themselves. I wouldn't say. I, I never wanted to fight from the beginning. But when QP got up and walked away from the table, what else do I have? Right. I, I want him to stay at the table. Let's negotiate. Uh, I don't care if we negotiate all day, all night. And uh, I wouldn't call it a sledgehammer. I call it a tool, similar to they have a tool. And their are big sledgehammers going on strike. So that's that's even more dangerous than any, any tool I ever have. The reporter here was asking him what had changed over the weekend that led the government to change their position on Bill 28, um, you know, given their uh, decisive, quote, sledgehammer of using the notwithstanding clause. So I guess the question was, like, why did you soften? And, I mean... I guess the reason why I found this quote so interesting was because it felt like it was creating a bit of an equivalence that sat awkwardly with me, right? Like, it was creating this equivalence between a constitutional right, which is striking, and then a constitutional, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong here with this word, but basically a bit of a constitutional loophole, and... It just sat. Oh, I just. It just sat kind of awkwardly. I don't know. What do you think? Like, do you think people will have the same kind of, you know, gut feeling as me? I mean, it is
0: an odd uh, equivalence, and I, I don't think if you if you think about it for long enough. It, it, it doesn't sit right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, unions exist to bargain collectively for their members. Uh, the right to strike, I mean, certainly, I know conservative legal scholars actually really uh, strongly disagree with the Supreme Court's jurisprudence that read a right to strike into the charter. Um, mm-hmm. But it is also the Supreme Court's jurisprudence and the the government has to, more or less, has to live with the rules as they find them. Right. And it's that's not to say that you can't imagine a scenario in which uh, using the notwithstanding clause might be the only way forward or an appropriate way forward. But I think certainly uh, we talked about the polls. We talked about you could just even look at the government's own behavior. Clearly, this was not a decision that they were willing to go to the wall to defend. Mm. In general, I think it's better for everybody if these negotiations don't get tied up in like grand philosophical arguments about like the government's right to make policy versus we're the only
1: ones that are on my mind <laughs> <laughs> right
0: but like there was also a very concrete matter that qp is trying to win compensation increases for its members yeah and and you know let me take this from uh the left wing uh side of of the politics here and you know i saw a lot of people who were uh, in fact, a little bit disappointed at how quickly this unfolded because people were gearing themselves up for, you know, you had people screaming, about, like, let's have a general strike. And then, you know, they were hoping for a real moment of, like, widespread labor militancy. And mm. when it fizzled so quickly, there was this, like, oh, oh, is 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 that all it's gonna be? And I, I, I get why, you know, like, as a reporter, that would have been really fun to cover. But um, from QP's perspective, you know, like, They're trying to win compensation increases for their lowest paid members. Mm -hmm. And those people don't deserve to be made, you know, symbolic uh, heroes when they're just trying to get back to work and get a paycheck.
1: That's fair. (laughs) Certainly, I made the joke about, uh, you know, sort of these, like, false equivalencies kind of is what sticks to my brain, not to diminish at all. Like, 39K is definitely at least not a livable wage in Toronto. I just want to say one more thing, actually. I said just one more thing earlier, but now is the actual last one last thing. <laughs> and that's the premier in those uh, remarks to the reporter. He kind of made it sound like he was at the bargaining table. You know, he just wanted everyone to be back there. He wanted to sit with everybody. Is he actually there? He's symbolically
0: at the bargaining table. The vast majority of this work is done by a, a bargaining team. Yeah, It is the premier and his cabinet who have the final say on whether to accept an offer, a tentative agreement with QP or any other union. But no, I mean, the the, the premier is not like literally, physically in the mm-hmm. room. I will say, though, you can't avoid the personalities involved in politics. Yes, uh, totally. Personalities absolutely matter. And if the premier isn't literally at the table, everybody knows that the premier is casting a shadow, let's say.
1: Yeah, that's fair. I guess I, I wanted to make it clear partially because Doug Ford is is a politician who has really ridden to success, or I don't know what the saying is, like, he's been so successful because he seems relatable. Yes. And I feel like this was another example of that that I really just wanted to clarify for the record. Another thing that the government seems to be kind of sort of maybe (laughs) flip-flopping on are mask mandates. And I thought this would be a good moment to maybe shoehorn it in in the discussion of, you know, in the context of flip-flopping things. You know, what was the non-directive directive on that?
0: Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, uh, gave a a pretty stark briefing to reporters at Queen's Park uh, earlier on Monday, uh, shortly before we all had to go into a a virtual lockup for the fall economic statement, uh, in which Moore, uh, you know, laid out uh, some of the the, uh, bleak numbers for uh, the provinces' pediatric intensive care capacity. And, uh, you know, hospitals are being asked to plan for uh, a much larger surge than they uh, are, are normally prepared for. Uh, basically, you know, the we're not just talking about COVID anymore. We have a particularly uh, nasty strain of influenza that is uh, sending uh, young children to the ER, uh, as well as the uh, RSV, um, which unfortunately has a, a word in it that I can't remember how to pronounce, um, but it's, it's the respiratory, respiratory something virus. Okay. Um, something. That's the uh, specificity. <laughs> that, that That's actually what to it here.
1: stands for. The yes. <laughs> um,
0: but uh, the substance of today's announcement was that uh, more is asking people to resume wearing masks indoors and um, including basically asking adults to mask up at home if they start feeling like cold and flu symptoms, and they have young children uh, at home. Wow. I want to be clear. So if
1: I'm a monk to, let's say, a toddler, and I wake up with the sniffles, you're saying I should be masking at
0: home? I'm sorry, but you should. Um, you should be doing good hand hygiene, cleaning surfaces, masking as best you can to decrease the risk to that child. It's, uh, you know, one of the most serious statements he's made since uh, the spring, since, you know, we had the, the Omicron waves uh, in the spring. But it's not a mask mandate and Moore is uh, not moving towards any compulsory mask mandate yet though he seems to be as much as one can sort of explicitly do something like this he, he did explicitly leave the door open to uh, a, a more formal mask mandate in the future if the uh, current uh, respiratory waves uh, do not ease.
1: unequivocally, we won't touch the green belt. Uh, unlike other governments that don't listen to people, I've heard it loud and clear, people don't want me touching the green belt, we won't touch the green belt. We'll figure out uh, how to clean up this housing mess and this housing crisis, that we're facing in a different fashion so that was premier doug ford back in 2018 um but we thought it was worth replaying that clip literally telling us that his government will not touch the green belt uh shout out to meredith martin and the team at the agenda for finding that clip fast forward four years and a few months and the government is now is it fair to say reversing course <laughs> like opening up chunks of the green belt for development after all jmm I don't even call you that. I don't know why that's in there. John Michael, <laughs> what's happening here?
0: This is part of a, a much bigger package of policy changes the government has brought in in the last few weeks to try and get more housing built. We talked about, a little bit about that in the uh, segment on the fall economic statement. You know, the government believes that we fundamentally have a, a supply shortage in Ontario, a, a shortage of new homes, and getting more homes built is the fastest way to make housing more affordable. Uh, <laughs> That is a, a, a debatable argument, but that is the uh, position the government has, so mm-hmm. this is why they are doing things. Mm-hmm. Uh, before MPPs went back to their writings for the Remembrance Day Constit Week, Minister Steve Clark introduced Bill 23, the More Homes Built Faster Plan. We talked about it a little bit in a frenzy a few weeks ago, but uh, just to give a recap for our listeners, the government has endorsed the target of 1.5 million new homes over 10 years. A lot of the focus is on uh, private home building, private market delivery. Uh, homes rather than public housing, though there are some measures in there to make affordable housing development uh, more affordable and more competitive with market development. They have uh, loosened zoning rules to allow three residential units on uh, any property that currently only has one. They are restricting third-party appeals to the Ontario Land Tribunal, uh, limiting Ontario's conservation authorities to uh, appeal any building plans, any any building applications, and reducing parkland requirements for construction of affordable housing.
1: So those last three things you listed off there, it really sounds distressing. <laughs> um, it sounds like it's disempowering conservation authorities, um, potentially third-party appeals from environmental groups, NGOs, maybe even First Nations, um, and quite literally zoning for less green spaces. At one point, though, uh, First Nations are actually
0: one group who will continue to have uh, appeal rights to the land tribunal. I would say, you know, if you want to find the theme that runs through all of these things. Mm -hmm. Um, You look at the decision to um, expand urban boundaries in cities like Hamilton, uh, the uh, decision to open up uh, land in the Green Belt and uh, weakening conservation authorities. I mean, I think it's just fair to say that the Ford government is fonder of sprawl <laughs> than, for example, the liberals were when they were in power.
1: Aesthetics aside of like, you know, the white picket fence, beautiful single like single family homes, blah, blah, blah. Is it, is it because like you will actually get more of like a tax base, for example?
0: So I'll say very quickly, the conservatives have always been skeptical when they were in opposition and even when they were in power there have always been voices that were skeptical of the specific way that the green belt was uh, imposed and like the lines on the map and where they were drawn and I'm going to get back to that in a minute okay. but th- there is also i think uh, a belief among many conservatives that as much as you could say like you know uh, people like living in cities and they like dense, vibrant, you know, transit-accessible communities. Mm. The reality is that the vast majority of people are uh, moving out to suburbs and even exurbs uh, in basically car-centered uh, communities. That's a much larger argument. But as for the details of uh, this proposal for the Greenbelt, the government is proposing to remove or redesignate 15 areas of land totaling approximately 7,400 acres from uh, the edges of of the Green Belt that are uh, serviced or adjacent to services, as the, the uh, government's news release put it. Uh, and at the same time, they will add 9,400 new acres of land to that zone.
1: Just to clarify, what does serviced mean in this context?
0: Uh, this just means that uh, there are basically water and sewer pipes nearby.
1: Got it. So, And if the government is removing 7,400 acres from the Green Belt and adding 9,400 acres, I mean, it kind of sounds like that's an increase. What's the catch, though? <laughs>
0: so the the catch is that the lands, or at least some of the lands that the government is proposing to add to the Green Belt uh, already had other different forms of protection so that, you know, while the, the quote-unquote Green Belt is growing, it's not clear that there's actually any increase in the total amount of protected lands in Ontario.
1: Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> so but those are literally more lands I don't understand
0: so the green belt is just one policy the green belt has its own law but there's lots other policies that protect lands in other ways and so there are things like conservation areas and and natural preserves and and these kinds of things that are not mm. green belt, but they are uh, natural protections for the land. Oh,
1: I see. So it seems like they're protecting something twice, potentially.
0: They, they are double-counting I see.
1: Okay, that does clarify it. Okay, so then for more clarification for people who actually had to Google where the Green Belt is, I got you. Um, it's a conservation region that starts at Niagara Falls, right up against Lake Ontario. It wraps around Hamilton, the GTA, starts moving its way north until it hits Lake Simcoe, and then comes back southeast, just past Coburg. Um, it also splits northward in this, like, little string, upwards, little northward string, uh, towards Collingwood, Owen Sound, past Lion's Head, and ends at the tip of Fathom Five National Marine Park. That all sounds like beautiful cottage country to me. That's the Niagara Escarpment, basically. It It just shoots north. Got it, got it, got it. And so the website, because the Green Belt has its own website, (laughs) says that it's permanent protection, the Green Belt's permanent protection is essential for climate resilient communities and a thriving local economy. So
0: the changes to the greenbelt uh, affect a number of different municipalities, uh, Hamilton, Markham, Whitchurch-Stouffville, Vaughan, Pickering, Ajax, uh, Grimsby. The government says that the the point of all of these changes is to get homes built quickly on uh, land that is is either already serviced or adjacent to uh, already serviced areas. And right. this is what I was talking about about the conservatives being skeptical about the way the lines on the map were drawn, uh, because there there have always been complaints in some areas, and I'm, I'm thinking in particular of Grimsby, I believe, where there were services in the ground in an area that was ready to be developed, and uh, then the green belt was brought in, and that was all frozen the liberals believed it was uh, extremely important to preserve uh, that area as uh, I believe it was uh, agricultural uses. And the local community had said, hey, like we, we paid tax dollars to put Water in the ground, so there there were those kinds of complaints, and you know the liberals made some adjustments to the green Belt after about ten years uh, of its uh, existence, uh, and there was a certain acknowledgement that like not every you know specific line on the map had been drawn perfectly, uh, which is not to imply um, an equivalence between uh, what the liberals did and what is happening here. The Greenbelt's defenders are understandably alarmed at the proposal to uh, open it up for development.
1: Yeah, I mean, is it even possible that... changing it would be completely void of any consequence? Like, Is it like possible that the climate crisis has gotten so bad that protecting these lands don't even matter? I think the housing crisis has
0: gotten so bad that the Tories may not pay a terribly severe price for this. Um, mm. And I think this was always going to be the Achilles heel for the Green Belt uh, and the, the growth plan, the uh, growth control policies that were supposed to go with the Green Belt. Um, you know, we saw in Ontario that voters' fondness for renewable energy didn't survive skyrocketing electricity prices uh, that mm-hmm. occurred under the liberals. And what we are seeing now raises this question, you know, will the public's desire to preserve the green belt survive housing prices that are effectively putting a generation of young voters in poverty?
1: Yeah, that's such a good point. I'm, I'm glad you raised that, actually. I mean, though, I will say for the record, it, it does leave me somewhat uncomfortable to be... Um, I guess, putting, like, housing needs or infrastructure needs and pitting it against uh, decisive climate action. But, you know, I am a naive person (laughs) and young and whatever. Um, But I wonder, could removing these protections then endanger those serviced areas in any ways? Like, could it mean more floods for people's basements or could it cost insurance providers a lot more money in the near or medium term
0: the real vulnerability that i think we can see almost immediately and and uh, you know i was just talking about you know the danger of like drawing maps on a or drawing lines on a map from you know the premier's office or whatever and so i'm not going to pretend to have like walked these areas where uh the, the government is proposing to to you know carve out a few thousand acres. Um, I'm not intimately familiar with this land, but just from the map, you can see, you know, the locations that they're talking about. I'm I'm particularly concerned about uh, the the vulnerability of watersheds. You know, Mm -hmm. when you build new homes uh, that, I mean, the homes themselves are necessarily disruptive, but homes are also attached to Roads, and you know, in some cases here, we're going to be talking about parking lots and parklands, and and all of these things disrupt uh, the the normal or natural watersheds. Uh, even in the best case, I mean, just think of something basic like you know how much road salt gets poured on a, ro- a canadian road in the middle of winter right we, we actually we already know how much salt flows into lake ontario thanks to gta highways so those kinds of things are where my head is is going right now i do feel like i i, I do need to put this into a little bit of context though and, and i don't want this to sound like i'm minimizing things but you know the green belt is huge it mm-hmm. is uh, famously uh, Premier McGinty used to say, it's bigger than Prince Edward Island. Um, oh. Yeah. Uh, so 2 million <laughs> acres of land in the Green Belt, uh, more or less. So uh, even if we don't count the government's uh, nominal additions to uh, the Green Belt, the land that they are t- taking out of the Green Belt amounts to about 0.4% of mm. the Green Belt.
1: Okay, that's fair. And I appreciate you quantifying that. I'm curious, you know, you've been reporting on municipal housing affairs for a while. Like... Have we seen examples of skirting Green Belt conservation efforts in the past from previous governments? The Liberals had a um, what you could almost think of as a typo in
0: the growth plan uh, several years ago that was uh, spotted by the Neptis Foundation and effectively what it was allowing was what you, you or I would just describe as like suburban sprawl. Mm-hmm. And it was allowing a huge amount of it to happen in Simcoe County that was technically in keeping with the growth plan, even though it was leading to results that nobody intended. It was it was clearly not what the growth plan intended. And they, they quickly moved to, to close that loophole. But that's, I think, an example of how hard this problem is, right? If you think of the demand for new homes as, you know, a balloon that keeps inflating and you try and squeeze down in one spot and the balloon expands somewhere else. And I'm not, frankly, very optimistic that allowing uh, these chunks of land in the Green Belt is going to do much for uh, housing affordability. But uh, I do think that this is a, uh, a very hard problem that uh, both the government and, frankly, you know, voters and citizens should uh, take seriously.
1: Yeah, yeah. Does and my last question for you on this, like, does this greenbelt initiative set any precedents that? we wouldn't want for other protected lands across the province.
0: You know, I was just talking about this as like 0.4% of the Green Belt, and and, uh, somebody is undoubtedly already angry at me for (laughs) sounding like I'm minimizing it. And and again, I I don't want to sound like I am minimizing it, because I I think the precedent here is more alarming than the the substance of the announcement itself. The amount
1: of land, exactly. Yeah. yeah. uh,
0: You know, allowing developed area to spread into the Green Belt is not going to do a ton for affordable housing. I mean, the government says, you know, they're hoping to get 50,000 homes built, which isn't like actually a lot of housing given the the land that we are talking about and given uh, what the, I mean, we've already talked about needing 1.5 million new homes. So 50,000 by 1.5 million, you know, you can just, you can do the math, but we're talking about a rounding error here, basically. So the specific changes to the green belt announced uh, are, are not huge in an absolute sense, but I think it's absolutely fair for uh, people to say that the precedent is troubling, certainly if you value the future of the Green Belt.
1: Yeah, definitely. And we'll throw this link in the show notes, but um, the government is seeking community feedback about this piece of Bill 23, and that session of feedback, I guess, solicitation, closes December 4th. So if you have strong feelings, we'll link to the page where you can submit a comment yourself. And that
0: is the On Poly podcast for Tuesday, November 15th, 2022.
1: A reminder to check out our newsletters. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash newsletters. This week, Steve does actually still contribute to the newsletter from his vacation. um, And uh, Steve and John Michael talk a bit more about the political fallout of the reversal of Bill 28.
0: Any feedback you have, we are happy to hear, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. Write us with a question if you want to be featured in the show. This week's episode was produced and edited by Tiffany Lamb. Our managing editor is Shahayar Tajvidi.
1: Production support from Carla Lucchetta, Jan Jagannathan, Nikki Ashworth, and Jonathan Hallowell. Should I remind everyone that COVID isn't over yet, people? I'm just
0: mostly here, very pleased to have this all went. As far as I'm concerned, Steve's dead to me. You're the new (laughs) (laughs) co-host.